Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the town and gown murders. But first, your true crime headlines. A Florida man who was wrongfully convicted of murder voted for the first time in the 2020 election. Robert Dubois was only 19 years old when he was wrongfully convicted of murder in Tampa and spent nearly 37 years behind bars. He was cleared and released from prison in August after being found innocent in the 1983 murder and rape of 19-year-old Barbara Grams. In September, a judge vacated his conviction, clearing him of all charges. On Election Day 2020, Dubois cast his first vote in Hillsborough County, according to the Innocence Project of Florida, who tweeted, quote, Voting gives you the opportunity to be the voice and the vote for the future you desire. Be a voice for those who are kept from having a say. In 2018, Florida voters passed Amendment 4 in a landslide, which restored voting rights to most felons who had served their sentence. As many as 1.4 million people whose previous felony convictions barred them from casting a ballot had their voting rights restored. However, state lawmakers then passed a bill stipulating that all terms of the sentence had not been served until paying off all fines and fees first. A recent federal appeals court ruling upheld the requirement, which left many unable to vote on Election Day. A Massachusetts man whose murder conviction was overturned by the state's highest court was shot and killed on Tuesday. 30-year-old Jean Carlos Lopez was found suffering from a gunshot wound outside his Taunton home at about 4 p.m., according to a statement from the office of the Bristol District Attorney. He was taken to Morton Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. The District Attorney's office confirmed that Lopez was the same man sentenced to life in prison after being convicted of murder in connection with a 2010 homicide in the city. Lopez was released from prison in March after the Supreme Judicial Court overturned his conviction, ruling that the prosecution had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was at the 2010 murder scene. Authorities say that it's too soon to say whether Lopez's killing is connected to the 2010 homicide. His death remains under investigation. No arrests have yet been made. A Brown County, Wisconsin judge who was scheduled to sentence a woman for lying during a homicide investigation was informed on Monday that the defendant had died. The 68-year-old defendant, Catherine Friday, was dating 75-year-old James Prokopovitz when his wife, Victoria, 59, disappeared in April of 2013. Her body has never been found, but he was charged with her murder in May of 2019. The defendant pleaded no contest to conspiracy to commit perjury, perjury, and obstruction earlier this year. The attorney moved to dismiss the charges, which was granted by Judge Tammy Joe Hawk. Prokopovitz is scheduled to stand trial next February. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the town and gown murders. But first, a quick break. I believe that reading labels is key. 
I do it with everything, from the food I buy to the beauty products that I use. This year, I've been making the switch to more natural products, and with the holiday season around the corner, I like to get into the spirit by indulging in the sights, sounds, and scents of the season. That's why I decided to update my native collection with their candy cane holiday scent. Native deodorant is the perfect addition to your holiday routine this year, and they make a perfect stocking stuffer. Native deodorant doesn't just block odor better, it's made better, using natural ingredients that you can actually recognize, like tapioca starch, shea butter, and coconut oil. Did you know that most deodorants work by using aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? Yeah, doesn't sound healthy to me either. That's why Native never uses ingredients like parabens, sulfates, aluminum, or talc. And switching to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on odor protection. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh all day long. With over 10 scents, Native has something for everyone. Their most popular classic scents are coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, citrus and herbal, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, they have rotating seasonal scents, like coconut milk and turmeric for fall, rosemary and lemon zest, and of course, candy cane. Best of all, Native is vegan and never tested on animals, so it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Native is risk-free to try. Every product comes with free shipping within the U.S., plus free 30-day returns and exchanges. Do what I did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash murderminute or use promo code murderminute at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash murderminute or use the promo code MURDERMINUTE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Go Native! We talk a lot about physical health and mental health, but what about sexual health? Whether you hit the gym, take a walk, or meditate, if you want to take care of your whole self, you need to prioritize your pleasure along with your body and mind. Put your well-being first with Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories and guided sessions that are designed to turn you on and help you get in touch with yourself. The stories are relatable and immersive, so you feel like you're right there. And there's something for everyone, whoever and whatever you're into. Find stories about a spontaneous hookup with a hot stranger, getting closer with that sexy yoga instructor, or even stories about trying that new toy together or getting tied up. With new content added every week, there's always more to explore. Spice things up today with Dipsy. For Murder Minute listeners, Dipsy is offering a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com mm. That's a 30-day free trial when you go to dipseastories.com mm. What are you waiting for? Go to dipsystories.com slash mm. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On the afternoon 
of April 25, 2009, in downtown Athens, Georgia, the Athens Community Theater held their annual gathering for the Town and Gown Players Theater Group. On the last Saturday of each April, former members of the Town and Gown Players would reunite for a homecoming picnic. Members who moved away would return to catch up with friends. Followed by the theater troupe putting on a performance later in the evening, Sherlock Holmes: The Final Adventure. But this year, the show would not go on. Over a dozen witnesses would later report that the nightmare began when they saw 57-year-old George Martin Zinken, a professor of marketing at the University of Georgia, walk up to 40-year-old attendee Tom Tanner. And shoot him three times point blank in the back of the head. He then shot 63-year-old Ben Teague. At first, some attendees thought that it must have been a prop gun. But George Zinken continued shooting in a manner described by witnesses as quote, "detached and businesslike." After he ran out of bullets, George reloaded. A new magazine into his pistol, walked toward the theater's entrance, and shot his 47-year-old wife, Marie Bruce, in the chest. She had been attending to a donation collection box. With all three dead, and two others wounded, George Zinken fled. He was seen driving away in his red Jeep Liberty. The couple's ten-year-old daughter and eight-year-old son, in the back seat. Since we are all involved with theater, it almost seemed like a theatrical stunt of some sort. One stunned witness recalled, "So initially, people didn't really react the way you would expect them to react to a violent act like that. Shock soon gave way to panic, and picnic attendees." Ran screaming. As calls flooded the police station, a next-door neighbor of the Zinkins, Bob Covington, heard a knock at his door. It was George, and the children. George told Bob that there had been an emergency, and asked if he wouldn't mind watching the kids for a while. Bob Covington agreed. Having no idea what had just happened, it would be the last time that George Zinken would be seen alive. As he drove away, residents all over Athens locked themselves in their homes, and armed police officers began to comb the city, searching for him. When police interviewed George and Marie's children to see if they knew anything about what happened. It was clear that they hadn't witnessed the murders. When asked if she knew what her father's emergency was, his daughter replied, quote, "Something about a firecracker." Detectives tried to track George's cell phone, but there was no signal and no sign of George Zinken. It was the beginning. Of what would become a massive nationwide manhunt, 
as investigators started looking into the background of George Zinkin. They found an impressive academic record, three children from a previous marriage, a second home in Amsterdam, and problems with his second marriage. George and Marie seemed to have it all. George was an academic and a poet, and a professor of marketing at the University of Georgia as well as a university in Amsterdam. Marie was a divorce attorney who belonged to a law practice in downtown Athens and was passionate about her local theater troupe. The couple had a beautiful home together and, despite both working long hours, always found time for their two young children. Marie was super mom, and George was a doting father. Both were well-known and respected in the community, but they had very different personalities. Friends and colleagues said that it was unusual for George to say more than a few words before disengaging. Marie, on the other hand, was friendly, engaging, and vivacious. Professor Zinken was described as eccentric by some. He often walked around campus barefoot and was sometimes mistaken for a student. This quirky behavior was generally overlooked on account of his brilliance, according to colleagues. One student described him as, quote, Einstein and a creep at the same time. But his track record with the University of Georgia was impeccable. He received the Terry Outstanding Faculty Award that year and in 2006. George Zinkin was known in his field around the world. He had been published over 100 times in peer-reviewed academic journals and was the editor of the Journal of the Academy of Marketing Science from 2003 to 2006. In 2004, he was presented with an award by the American Academy of Advertising for outstanding contribution to research. Perhaps the only blight on George Zinkin's otherwise impressive record were a series of allegations brought against him in the 1980s. While he was at the University of Houston, George Zinkin sexually harassed multiple female academics and ultimately had a lawsuit brought against him. Over the years, there were rumors of affairs with students. Friends closest to George and Marie told police that despite outward appearances, they had been having marital difficulties, and that privately, George was controlling and verbally abusive. In a search of the couple's home, authorities found more guns and ammunition. Documents found on George's computer revealed that he had wanted to repair his relationship with his wife. The couple had been attending marriage counseling, but two months before the shooting, Marie removed her name from a joint bank account, and George had begun looking into divorce. Things had become so bad at home that George often slept at his office. Police concluded that George Zinkin shot Marie and Tom Tanner because she was leaving him, and George suspected that the two were having an affair. Tom was a recent divorcee himself, 
with a young daughter. And he and Marie had grown close while working together at the theater company. George's third victim, Ben Teague, a beloved member of the theater group who friends called Gentle Ben, was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. The two bystanders wounded by bullet fragments were just collateral damage. Three days into their manhunt, a tip came in. An anonymous caller said that George was hiding out in the woods. On April 30th, 2009, five days after the shooting, George Sinkins' red Jeep Liberty was found in a wooded ravine after police picked up a signal from his cell phone in the northwest area of Clark County. Inside the Jeep, investigators discovered his cell phone, a laptop, his passport, wallet, ID, and some cash. George's abandoning of these items led police to believe that he couldn't have gone far. Also in the Jeep were spent shell casings and a map that was printed the day before the murders. It gave directions to the home of Barbara Carroll, a colleague of George Sinkins. The two hadn't been getting along at work. Barbara had told previous department heads, quote, that George Zinkin was dangerous. Many people in this college and this department have known about Zinkin's troubled past and did nothing about it, Barbara said. Those people also bear responsibility here. Fearing that Barbara Carroll might be George's next target, police checked in on her. She was safe, so where was George? On May 9th, 2009, cadaver dogs found him. About a mile away from where he had parked his red jeep, George used a shovel to dig his own shallow grave. After laying down in the grave with the shovel, he pulled a wooden pallet covered in dirt over himself to conceal his body and shot himself in the head. George Zinkin's body lay unclaimed in the county coroner's office for nearly a week. One day before it was set to be buried in a pauper's grave, a son from his first marriage claimed his body. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.